Good morning, DeKalb and Blackberry Creek, Streamwood Bartlett, and St. Charles. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. Good to see you. Can you tell our, our uh, sermon today is going to be about obedience? <laughs> All right. Uh, but before we get into God's Word, I have an announcement, kind of a sad announcement to make. Uh, every once in a while, we will note when a staff member is transitioning off our staff, making a move. We don't do it all the time because we have over 100 staff, but if it's somebody we know across our four campuses, everyone kind of knows they've been up on our platform, then we, we make the, uh, the announcement more public. So the newest transition coming up is that Eric Rogis, our executive pastor, is going to be leaving Christ Community Church and joining the staff of a church down in Nashville. This will be the hardest goodbye I've ever said. And I mean that. I have worked alongside Eric for 17 years. He's been our executive pastor for 13 years. Uh, but this is a good move for Eric. It puts him in a part of the country where he had hoped to land up with his family. Uh, he's going to be going to a church that's about the same size we were 17 years ago when he started to work with us. So he brings a lot of experience that's going to be a tremendous help to them. And uh, quite frankly, I hope it's a less stressful job for him too. When, when you oversee over 100 staff and four campuses and a multi-million dollar budget like he's been doing here, it's, it's a tiresome job. He loves it, and he's been great in the role. He's a loyal, faithful man of integrity. Uh, he's been a joy to work with. I will miss his laugh. I will miss the fact that we are brothers as Cubs fans together, you know. But uh, just so you know, he's going to be around for a couple of months, so he's not going to officially say goodbye to the end of May, and we'll have him and Rachel up here on stage and do a formal goodbye. But I, I wanted to let you know that we're starting to make a transition. We got a transition team in place. We're starting a nationwide search for a new executive pastor, but we're going we're gonna to miss Eric. So when you see him, uh, tell him, say thanks so much for your faithful service all these years at Christ Community Church. Now, jump into God's word with me by inviting God's spirit to be our teacher. Let's pray together. Uh, God, our hearts are saddened at the thought of losing a teammate like Eric, but uh, we just see how faithful you've been to our church. Uh, you continue to minister to us, not only through the, uh, the paid staff, but through the many, many brothers and sisters that are sitting around us right now at our four campuses. And thank you for your Holy Spirit, who's our teacher, our personal tutor, our life coach, so that as we dive into your word, we expect to hear from you. Open our ears to hear what you've brought us to say uh, to each of our lives today in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I used to have a yellow lab, and I love that dog. Her name was, uh, was Abby, but Abby was not the most obedient dog on earth, okay? Uh, part of it was my problem. I took her to uh, obedience school when she was just a puppy, but my schedule got busy. I never finished the classes with her. I never reinforced what we had learned and trained and didn't insist on obedience. And so while a lovable dog, she was sometimes a royal pain in the neck. I mean, she was a dog I would throw a ball to, we'd play catch, she'd get the ball and run the opposite direction with it. Okay, anything we left on the counter by way of food, the kitchen counter, it was fair game. She would scarf it. At one time, she ate an entire stick of butter. Another time, she went through an entire box of Valentine's chocolates. Ate every chocolate, left the wrappers behind. Yeah, 
Uh, We would go for a walk and she would lunge at other dogs. We would leave the house and she would sleep on the sofa. She wasn't supposed to go near. You know, there would be a warm spot in the sofa when you, you, you got home. So it's not always pleasant to live with a dog who's disobedient. Now, on the other hand, we have all seen dogs that have been trained to be obedient, right? And they could do amazing things, these trained dogs. They could catch a frisbee in midair. I mean, they could babysit a toddler. They could look for bodies in the rubble of an earthquake. They could serve disabled people. They could retrieve a pheasant that's been shot out of the sky. They could change the oil on your car. (laughs) Okay, maybe I'm taking it just a little bit too far here. Uh, but, but my point is there's a huge difference between an obedient dog and a disobedient dog. Now, this is an analogy because I want to say there's a huge difference between a person who obeys God and a person who disobeys God. Uh, we are in the fifth week of a six-part study on the Old Testament book of Leviticus, and our topic today is obedience. So if you brought a Bible with you, I want you to turn three books in from the front cover, the book of Leviticus, chapter 26. There's an outline in your program. I would encourage you to follow along. If you're you're following the daily Bible reading schedule that we provide at Christ Community Church, you, you are probably rejoicing in the fact, the good news is that this week will be the last full week of reading Leviticus. This has been a... (laughs) Applause. This has been a difficult book you know, to read, but I hope that our series, our Bible-savvy series for the past five weeks, has helped you understand it and draw some life lessons uh, from it. So uh, today, Leviticus 26, second to last chapter in the book, and this book draws to a close in the same way that some other Old Testament books conclude. It, It comes to a close with two lists. There is a list of here are the blessings or the rewards for those who obey God, and here are the disciplines for those who disobey God. You'll find similar lists in Exodus, in Deuteronomy, in uh, the book of Joshua. In fact, you will find similar lists in secular ancient literature, ancient literature of the Near East. It's called treaty language, treaty language. So if you look at old Babylonian or Hittite or Assyrian treaties, what you'll find is a long list of stipulations for the people who are being addressed. And then at the end of the stipulations, the rules, there there will be two lists. Here are the blessings for those who obey these rules. Here are the curses for those who disobey these rules. So this is what we have at the end of Leviticus. I'd like to read the opening two verses of Leviticus chapter 26. If you got a Bible, follow along. If you don't have a Bible, you'll see the words up on the screen. Uh, Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves, and do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Now stop there. Uh, Before we get to the two lists, rewards for those who obey, disciplines for those who disobey. There's this uh, introduction, and the introduction spells out a big idea I want want you to grab hold of. Here it is. The big idea is that a relationship with God and obedience to God go hand in hand. They're inseparable. A relationship with God and obedience to God, you can't have one without the other. Okay, They feed each other. You know, for starters, a relationship with God feeds obedience to God. And that's the point of the opening two verses. 
You know, begins with a relationship with God. Note at the end of verse 1, last line, I am the Lord, your God. I'm your God. Your God. Second verse ends almost the same way. I am the Lord. Lord, by the way, was the personal name that God had given his people in Old Testament times by which to call him. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh. Say Yahweh. Yahweh. So God says, I'm your God. I've given you my name, my personal name to call upon. This this relationship with God is underscored negatively in verse 1 where he says, hey, don't make idols, don't make any images. This is to be an exclusive relationship between you and me. And then verse 2, he says the same thing positively. Observe my Sabbaths, have reverence for my sanctuary. You know, one day a week, set aside time to gather in my worship center because I am the Lord your God. There's a relationship here and a relationship feeds obedience to God. When you know that God loves you and God God wants the best for your life, then you're more prone to obey God. Now, Now, the flow goes the other way as well. Obedience to God feeds a relationship with God. Obedience to God feeds a relationship with with God. When we obey God, we're showing God that that we love him, that we want to honor him, that, that we want to draw close to him. Jesus put it this way in John 14, verse 23. He said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. You hear what Jesus is saying? If if you want God to be at home in your life, then you got to keep my teaching. So keeping God's rules, obedience, contributes to our relationship with God. Kevin DeYoung, one of my favorite authors, he he warns us against trying to separate a relationship with God from obedience to God, relationship and rules. Don't split them up, he says. Uh, This is a a quote from his book, A Hole in Our Holiness. And uh, by the way, this is the book Clayton and I have failed to to, uh, reference it so far, but this is the book we chose Uh, to recommend throughout this series. We just haven't gotten around to recommending it. So if you're looking for a good book to go with Leviticus, we're carrying it at resource this month. A Hole in Our Holiness, it's a short book, easy to understand, probably one of the best books I've read in the last year. Let, Let me give you a couple of quotes from Kevin's book. He says, it sounds really spiritual to say that God is interested in a relationship, not in rules. You heard that one before? Kevin continues, but that's not biblical. From top to bottom, the Bible's full of commands. They aren't meant to stifle a relationship with God, but to protect it, to seal it, and define it. Another quote from his book. He says, commands show us what God is like, what he prizes, what he detests, what it means to be holy as God is holy. To hate all rules is to hate God himself who ordained his rules to reflect his nature. So you hate rules? You're stiff-arming God, Kevin says. The law, God's rules, the law is God's plan for his people to enjoy communion with him, which is why the Psalms are full of declarations of delight regarding God's commands. Really good stuff. See, I want you to understand from the get-go, before we take a look at the two lists of, you know, rewards for those who obey, disciplines for those who disobey, we've got to understand this close relationship between a relationship with God and obedience to God. They go together. You get it? Good. So, now we're ready for the lists. List number one. God rewards those who obey. God rewards those who obey. Pick it up where we left off, verse 3. 
Scripture says, if you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. Your threshing uh, will continue until grape harvest and the grape harvest will continue until planting and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. Now I'm going to stop there, but this section that describes how God rewards those who obey, it continues on all the way down through verse 13. I'll let you read the the rest of the passage on your own sometime. But let me sum up the rewards for obedience that are mentioned in this passage. If you've got your Bible open in front of you, you could follow along. Verses 3 to 5, which I just read, talk about the reward of a good harvest. You know, the farmers are going to have their hands full. It's going to be one bumper crop after another, plenty of food, if you obey. Verses uh, 6 through 10 describe victory over enemies. Another reward, victory over enemies. Whether those, those enemies, if you read it, whether they're wild animals. And historians tell us that lions and bears roamed ancient Israel. Or, or whether those enemies are foreign armies. God is going to protect those who obey him. Verse 9 describes fertility. You know, going to be lots of babies for moms and dads who obey God. Verses 10 to 12 describe God's presence, the best reward of all. God promises, look, look at verse 12, he promises to walk among the people who obey him. See that phrase, walk among? I love it because it calls to mind a phrase from the opening book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis 2. God creates this original couple, Adam and Eve, places them in the Garden of Eden where they enjoy amazing fellowship and friendship with God and the scripture says God walked among them so that's that that's what we have here this closeness of a relationship between God and the people who obey him and then finally verse 13 a final reward here describes freedom from slavery the same God who delivered his people from bondage in Egypt is going to continue to grant them freedom if if they'll obey him. Now, that's quite a list of blessings, isn't it? And yet, it's just a sampling. Friends, this is just a sampling of how God rewards those who obey him. Now, I want to stop here for a minute. I want to make a few general comments about both rewards for those who disobey and disciplines for those who who disobey, because we need a, a few interpretive guidelines here so we don't misinterpret Leviticus 26 and misapply it to our lives. So three interpretation guidelines. First one is this. These rewards and disciplines will sometimes be corporate and other times be personal. What do I mean by that? Well, look at the very first reward in verse 4. Okay, It says that God's people, if they'll, they'll obey him, there'll be rain on their fields and plenty of crops. Now, that's obviously a corporate reward because if you stop and think about it, if there's a farmer who obeys God and he's living right next door to a farmer who disobeys God and it rains on the first dude's field, the second guy's field is going to get wet, right? I mean, it's going to be inevitable. So so the blessings for obedience are kind of corporate. They get spread around even on people who are disobedient. So that's good news. Now, some Bible scholars say that All of the rewards and all of the disciplines described in Leviticus 26 are meant to be understood in this corporate sense. In fact, they say that 
the rewards and disciplines in this chapter actually came true in the life of ancient Israel. When the people as a nation obeyed God, they experienced great reward. When the people as a nation, when they disobeyed God, generally speaking, they experienced God's discipline. Now, there's a takeaway here for those of us who live in the United States of America, isn't there? I mean, if we as a nation obey God, we can expect some reward from God's hand. If we disobey as a people, which is becoming more and more prevalent, isn't it? I mean, some heinous disobedience. When you think of the crass materialism in our country and the racism and the way we kill babies in the womb through abortion and sexual promiscuity, you know, the people who disobey God overall receive God's discipline. So there's a, there's a word of warning corporately being given in the disciplines, just as the word of reward, a positive for people as a whole who obey God. Now, that doesn't mean, however, that there's not a personal dimension to this as well. So when you read Leviticus 26 this week, please understand that throughout the Bible, there are passages where God addresses individuals and says, hey, if you obey me, you're going to be rewarded. Disobey me, you're going to be disciplined. So you can read Leviticus 26 and apply it to your personal life as well. Corporate dimension, personal dimension. Second interpretive rule. These rewards and the disciplines we're going to eventually get to, these are the general rule. But there are exceptions to the general rule in this life. There are exceptions to the general rule in this life. So the general rule we're looking at is that God rewards those who obey. Now, I could give you several examples of this. You know, I, th- I think of my kids. My three grown kids have all married wonderful spouses. And I look at their spouses, and as a father-in-law, I say, oh, my goodness, what quality people uh, my kids got and, 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 and spouses who love them and are just, just the right people, balance for them character-wise. And if you didn't know my kids, you might look at them first time and say, oh, they sure were lucky to get spouses like that. And I would say to you, it's got nothing to do with luck. It's got everything to do with obedience. Now, I'm not suggesting that my kids were perfect, but when it came to their dating lives, they wanted to please God. Okay, so they, you know, they had some ground rules. They would only date, uh, you know, members of the opposite sex who were followers of Jesus. They wanted to have the same spiritual priority in the life of that person they got serious with. Uh, When they were dating, they would bounce things off of us. Now, they didn't always gladly receive our feedback, but they were open to our feedback. In addition to that, they did not sleep with their partners before they got married. They obeyed what God's word says with regard to sexual purity. So I I look at that and I say, you know, it's not surprising to me that they got wonderful spouses because I think it's the reward for walking in obedience to God during their dating lives. You following me? Or or I look at, give you another example of this. I know some guys in our church who are business owners uh, and are wildly successful at what they do And some of these guys have gone through a course called uh, Business by the Book. It's a Bible study. It's a curriculum, biblical principles for running your business. So I look at their success, and I look at their obedience to God when it comes to running a business, and I say, I don't think it's coincidental that they've been successful. I think it's been a reward for walking in obedience to God. So this is a general rule that's true. You obey God, you experience God's reward in your life. Now, 
Does it always happen that way? Well, you ever heard of a guy named Job? <laughs> okay, there are exceptions in this life. So the entire book of the Old Testament written about Job, a guy who was stellar in his obedience to God. He had a reputation for being an obedient guy, but he lost everything. He lost his possessions, he lost his family, he lost his health. And so sometimes in this life, the rule doesn't hold true, but it's still ultimately true. There is going to be reward, even if it's in eternity, for those who walk in obedience to God. And so I just want to say to those of you who are obeying God and you're running into tough times and you're saying, like, where's the reward that goes with this? Hang on, because the reward's coming. It may be six months down the road. It may be six years from now. It may be in eternity but the reward will be worth the wait. I guarantee the reward will be worth the wait. Now, there's a third principle of interpretation I want to throw your way. Some rewards and disciplines are described literally in the Bible and others are described metaphorically. So I can illustrate the difference between literally and metaphorically with the last reward that's mentioned in Leviticus 26. Look at verse 13 again. This verse talks about God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Now, if you read this and you only understand this reward literally, you're going to have to conclude, well, this isn't so great. I mean, yeah, if, if I ever live in Egypt and am made a slave, I guess I can apply this to my life. God will bust me loose. Great. You know, what's the chance of that happening? So. But, but what if... What if this is not meant to be interpreted strictly in the literal sense of those who are enslaved in Egypt? What if it's a picture of the other sorts of bondage that God delivers obedient people from? Like what, 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 about, what about bondage to financial debt? What, what about bondage to an addiction like alcohol? What about bondage to depression? What about bondage to bitterness toward others? God's promise is if you walk in obedience to him, he'll bust you loose. He'll deliver you from that sort of slavery. You get it? Good. So as you're reading through the rewards for obedience and the disciplines for disobedience in Leviticus 26 this coming week, you know, some of the items on the list won't be literally applicable to you. They're from another time and another place. Some of them are way over the top. They're extreme. But, but are they metaphorically applicable to you? Are, are they pictures of something you can identify with? So keep that in mind as you're reading this week. And speaking of reading, reading God's book, let me just remind you, state the obvious here. You won't know what to do by way of obedience unless you're reading God's word. Okay, how, how will you know what to obey unless you're in the book on a daily basis? And let me underscore the importance of this with an analogy. So I don't know if you've ever taken your laptop computer and you've gone to Starbucks or some other public place to use their Wi-Fi. So you're going to work on emails or, or whatever. So you, you go online to make a connection and immediately up pops a page and it's their policy statement, right? It's all the rules you're supposed to follow. And at the end of it, it says, I agree. And you can click that button. Now, how many of you take the time to read the policy, all the rules, before clicking I agree? Like one of you? And he's lying, okay? <laughs> we don't do that, right? 
It's just, you know, forget that. I agree. Why? Because we want the reward of Wi-Fi connection, and so we just, sure, we agree. It doesn't work that way with God's Word, okay? You can't say, I want the rewards that go with obedience. Some, you know, generally speaking, I like the idea of rewards with obedience, but if you're not reading God's Word, don't click, I agree. God wants you to read his word. And so as you read his word, this is why we encourage the use of a Bible-savvy journal where you just write down. It's not a dear diary page where you're writing a page. You're writing down one line or two lines every day as you read. This is what I'm taking away and going to put into practice in my life this week. Okay? God's word is not just for information. It's for transformation. And the transformation only comes when we're determined to obey what we read. So God rewards those who obey. Here's the second list. God disciplines those who disobey. I want you to drop down to verse 14. I'm going to give you a sampling of these disciplines in Leviticus 26, verse 14. But if you will not listen to me, God says, and carry out all these commands, if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I'll do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. And on and on and on it goes. I'm going to stop here at verse 16. But this section goes all the way down to verse 39. In fact, this, listen to this, this list of disciplines for those who disobey is three times as long as the list of rewards for those who obey. Why do you think that is? Some Bible scholars conjecture that it may have something to do with the fact that we tend to be more motivated by our fear of discipline than we are by the thought of reward. And if you're thinking, well, that's not me, let me ask you a question. When you're out driving, okay, you're driving on the interstate, and you see a speed limit sign. Are, are you more apt to drive the speed limit because of the reward of better gas mileage? Or because you just passed a cop on the side of the road with a radar gun in his hand? See? We, 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 we tend to be motivated oftentimes by the threat of the, of the negative. Now, I talk to Christ followers all the time who believe that the only acceptable motivation for obeying God is love for God. See, it's got to be motivated by love. It, you know, that's the purest, most wholesome motivation. But I want to tell you, the Bible is full of other worthy motivations for obedience. In fact, Kevin DeYoung, in that book I mentioned earlier, A Hole in Our Holiness, he's got a page of over 20 biblical reasons for obeying God. Just one of them being what we're talking about right now, you know, God disciplines those who disobey. That's a motivation. So what kinds of disciplines does Leviticus 26 describe? If you've got your Bible open, drop down to verse 18. Verses 18 to 20 describe drought and bad harvests. Verses 21 and 22 describe the attacks of wild animals. Verses 23 to 26 describe war and the hardships that come from war, including disease and famine. Verses 27 to 39 describe defeat at the hands of enemies that results in being carried off as hostages. So we got exile here. 
Now, let, let me remind you as I'm going through this list that most of the disciplines here will never happen to you literally, although they did happen literally to the people of ancient Israel because of their disobedience. However, God may allow these things here to happen to you metaphorically if you disobey God. Now, let me come back to that in a few minutes because I want to talk more about, so what, what would it look like Okay, in our current day and age? What, what does God's discipline look like? But first, I, I want to make a comment about the very word disciplines because I actually chose a word that's not in the biblical text. In, in fact, if you look at the heading over the second list, you, you got your Bible open, the heading right over verse 14, what does it say? It says, punishment for disobedience. And you'll see that word punish again down in verse 18. Verse 18, God says, If after all this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. So why did I make my second point? God disciplines those who disobey him instead of God punishes those who disobey him. Well, for starters, it's because the word, the Hebrew word that gets translated punish in our text can also be translated discipline. In fact, some of you have a contemporary English translation. You've got the ESV translation that says, I will discipline. I will discipline you. And, and I just think that the word discipline does a better job of conveying the gist of this, this passage than the word punish does. I mean, when, when you hear the word punish, what comes to your mind? Doesn't it sound totally negative to you? Somebody is being made to pay for their sins, their wrongdoing. And justifiably so, you know, we deserve the payment. But the word punish seems to focus only on the, the negative response to our transgressions. What about the word discipline? Okay, the focus is not simply on paying for wrongdoing, but on correcting the wrongdoing, right? I mean, di discipline is a word used of moms and dads who discipline their kids. Why? Just to come down on their son, their daughter? No. In the hopes of changing, transforming their behavior, correcting something. Th this is why in Scripture, God is spoken of as a good father who disciplines his children. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus, you're a son, you're a daughter of God's. God promises out of love he's going to discipline you for disobedience. He wants to correct that behavior. You know, Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, they put it this way. Do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. God's doing it out of love. Hebrews 12 uh, last part of verse 10 says something along the same line, lines. It says, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. See, God wants to transform our character, and that's why he disciplines us when we disobey. Make sense? So let's go back to the issue I raised a few moments ago. What will that discipline look like in our lives? Okay, if it's not some of the stuff we just read about in Leviticus 26, if it's not famine and war and plague and, and, and so on, what, what will it be? Well, I, I find in both Scripture and in my personal life, God's discipline usually takes one of two forms. 
Okay, the, the first form it typically takes in my life is natural consequences. So natural consequences. Galatians 6 verse 7 describe what I mean. It says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. You probably heard that verse before. You reap what you sow. Okay, what, what does that look like in our lives? Well, it, it means that there are natural consequences when we sow disobedience. So if you sow gossip, for example, you're probably going to reap broken relationships with friends. Okay, if, if you sow dishonesty, you're going to reap an untrustworthy character, okay, a reputation. People aren't, people aren't going to trust you. Okay, if you sow anger, what are you going to reap? You might reap high blood pressure or other physical ailments, you know, bodies in your wake. Okay, if you sow materialism, you're going to reap an insatiable desire for more and more and more and more. They just never get satisfied. You are going to reap what you sow. And friends, that's just not good news. If you're thinking, well, I could live with that. No, you can't. You know, when I, when I look sometimes at, at what God does with me, you know, it's like, Jim, you want to go that way? You want to do that? Okay, and he steps back, go ahead. And then you experience the consequences, and you say, oh, disobedience wasn't worth it. Here, here's a second way in which God disciplines. He, he disciplines with increasing hardship, increasing hardship. I just quoted a verse a moment ago from Hebrews chapter 12. There's a huge passage in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, about God's disciplining us and how he does it. Verse 7 says, endure hardship as discipline. God's treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father. Hardship. Now, hardship is different from natural consequences in that hardship isn't necessarily related. It's not in the same area in which we disobey. Okay, natural consequences, same area. We just experience the consequences of our sin. Hardship can be in a totally different area. So, so, for example, let's say that my sin, my disobedience, is a mistreatment of Sue, that I've been harsh with my wife. Okay? How will God discipline me? Well, he may allow hardship in some other area other than my marriage. It may be a physical ailment. It may be a mechanical difficulty with my car. It may be a crisis that blows up at work. Some of you are saying, come on, Jim, you don't really believe that the sorts of hardships you just described come from God, and he's disciplining you for mistreating Sue? Friends, that's exactly what I believe, because it's what the Bible teaches. Now, please understand, I'm, I'm not saying that every hardship in my life is the result of some disobedience on my part. No, some of the hardships we experience are just because we live in a fallen world, right? So you, you could walk in total obedience to God and you're still going to experience some hardship, but sometimes God uses hardship to get our attention to say, alert, disobedience alert here, something's got to be fixed. And what happens if we blow off the warning? What happens if we blow off the hardship and we don't, we, we don't listen? tell you what happens God turns up the heat increasing hardship and it continues to increase until we correct the disobedience let me show this to you in Leviticus 26 drop down to verse 21 God says if you remain hostile toward me okay you've been disobedient and I've sent hardship 
But if you continue to remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. By the way, God says this very same thing four times in Leviticus 26. Four times. God says in so many words, if you, you won't pay attention to my disciplines, to the hardship I'm sending your way, if you won't correct your disobedience, it's going to get seven times worse. Intensifying hardship because God loves us too much to allow us get, to get stuck in our disobedience. And if, if, you're, if, if you're listening to me today and you're smugly thinking, well, that's not true because I've been disobedient to God and nothing's happened. All I can say is, according to Hebrews 12, that's because you're not his child yet. Because a loving father disciplines his kids. And if you don't receive discipline in a loving way from God when you've strayed from his path, it can only mean you've never surrendered your life to Christ and you're not a son or daughter of God yet. Because God does discipline his kids. And so I would encourage you, you know, the next time you find yourself facing an unexpected hardship, it's always good to ask God the question, uh, excuse me, God, are you trying to get my attention? Is there some area of disobedience in my life you're trying to correct? Again, it's not because hardship always says that, but sometimes it does. So it's a good question to ask. Number three, okay, God rewards those who obey God disciplines those who disobey. Three, God restores those who repent. Drop all the way down to verse 40. Verse 40, but if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sins, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. So what does God want us to do with our disobedience? Which, let's be honest, it's a daily thing in our lives, right? Disobedience, we, you know, there's something we do every day. We stray from, from God's path. What does God want us to do? You know, he wants us to humbly confess our sins. You see that verse 40? And then drop down to verse 41, last line, he wants us to pay for it, pay for it. Say, how do we pay for our sins? Well, in the days of Leviticus, it meant bringing an animal sacrifice to the tabernacle. See, our, our sins are an offense against a, a holy God, and this holy God is the giver of life. He's the source of life, and so the penalty for sin is death. In Old Testament times, God was willing to accept the death of an animal as the substitute for the death of the person who had sinned. And so for hundreds of years, these animal sacrifices pointed ahead to a coming ultimate sacrifice. To the day when Jesus Christ, God's son, would give his life on a cross. He would die the death we deserve to die as a substitute for us to pay for our sins. So to pay for our sins means what? It means surrendering our lives to Christ, thanking him for what he's done for us on the cross. There's a, a repeating word in verse 42 I want to draw your attention to. Just read it to you a moment ago. It's the word covenant. You see that word in verse 42? It's repeated three times. 
When we surrender our lives to Jesus, God makes a covenant with us. A covenant is a contractual commitment. It's binding. There's no way of getting out of it. God makes a covenant with us. He commits himself to forgiving us and restoring us after we've sinned. And that covenant was signed in blood. Not in ink, but in blood. It was signed with the blood of God's son, Jesus Christ. So if you've been feeling the least bit uncomfortable today by what Leviticus 26 says about God disciplining those who disobey, let me just remind you that as harsh as that discipline may sound, God is never going to kick you to the curb. If you've put your hope and your trust in Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, the goal of God's discipline is always, always, always to restore you. He wants you back. He wants you back. He's made a covenant with you and signed it with the blood of his son. So when we identify areas of disobedience in our lives every day, in fact, today's a good day to do that because we're going to celebrate communion in just a few moments here. It's a good time to do self-evaluation and say, okay, God, what needs correction in my life today? You know, our response needs to be a confession of that sin, and then we go to Jesus and we thank him. If we put our hope and trust in him, surrendered our lives to him, we thank him that he has paid He has paid. He's paid for those sins. And it gets even better than that. He has not only paid for our disobedience. Listen to this. He has credited to our account his own perfect obedience. His righteousness. When you surrender to Christ, he not only pays for your disobedience, he credits to your account his own perfect obedience. Obedience. This is like, suppose you're in financial debt. You're deep in the weeds, thousands of dollars in the hole, and some benefactor comes along and says, I'll pay your debt. Huge relief. And your bank account is now up to zero, right? Said zero. No more debt, zero. Supposing the same person says, and just for the heck of it, I'm going to throw an additional million dollars in your bank account. How about that? (laughs) Are you kidding me? This is what Christ has done for you. He's taken away your sins on the cross. And he's credited to your account his obedience, his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 puts it this way. It says, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus gets our sin, and what do we get in return? We get his righteousness. Is that not the best deal you've ever heard of? Yes. But it gets even better than that. (laughs) See, because here's the deal. Even though you know that your sins have been forgiven by Jesus, he's paid for them. Even though you know that he's credited to your account his righteousness, there's still part of us, Christ followers, that says, yeah, but I wish. I just wish I obeyed more and disobeyed less. I wish there were more rewards for obedience in my life, practically speaking, and less disciplines for disobedience, practically speaking. And Jesus says, I got that base covered too. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit of God to come live in your life when you surrender yourself to me. And he, over time, is going to transform your character and make you more and more like me. 
He's going to strip away the disobedience. He's going to make you more and more obedient. You say, how does that happen? Well, we got a series about that starting two weeks from, from now. Okay, when, when, when we do Easter, we're going to launch this restoration series. The old is gone, the new is here. Okay, how does that happen? That's what we're going to be talking about in that restoration series. Now, we're going to move into a time of communion, which is really appropriate given what we've just been talking about, isn't it? What Christ has done for us. So I'm going to pray and then ask our campus pastors to lead each of their campuses in the time of communion. Would you pray with me? Lord God, would you quiet our hearts right now before you so that we can hear you speak? And would you put your finger on anything in our lives that needs to go? Before we experience any more natural consequences or increasing hardship for our disobedience, would you bring us humbly to the place of saying, oh God, forgive me. And for those who've never pleaded with you in this way before, never surrendered to Christ, may this be the moment when they say, oh, I want the Savior who paid for my sins. I want the Savior who could send his spirit to live in my heart and make me a new person. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.